You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to this, your Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor Marks, and joining me is Neil Hughes, and this is episode 151. Welcome. Victor, how's it going? It's excellent. How are you? Doing all right. Good as ever. I'm going to start right off with a topic that's a little interesting for us. Have you gotten your workout in? Not today. I'm, I'm, I'm more Have of you an, gone to the gym lately? I, <laughs> I do go to the gym, but I'm more of an evening workout guy. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm wondering is is your gym by any chance the Lifetime Athletic at Sky? <laughs> no, no. Mine is the YMCA. Ah. Uh, okay. Well, you know the YMCA is good. It's memorialized in a song. It is. So, so you're it's good, good there. Community center. Um, I'm a fan of the, supporting it that. Is. So absolutely. The reason why I ask about Lifetime is that the Lifetime at Sky at uh, 605 West 42nd has 13 compatible techno gym machines that are compatible with GymKit. Now, help help our listeners out here, because maybe not all of you know. What what is GymKit? What's the best explanation of GymKit? GymKit is uh, an, an expansion of the use of NFC. Um, Apple has had NFC chips in the iPhone and Apple Watch for a few years now, but it's just been limited to Apple Pay and some uses around that. Uh, they have slowly been opening it up, but in ways that are kind of unclear. Supposedly developers are able to tap into it, but eh, we don't really know. But there's other stuff in the Apple Watch, like Bluetooth and um, uh, what do they call it? ANT um, for... ANT Plus, yeah. ANT Plus for syncing of fitness data and stuff. And so Apple is tapping into all those sensors to allow devices to automatically connect. So if you've ever been to a gym where they have the ability to plug in your phone or do something like that, you know it can be kind of cumbersome, kind of confusing. The idea behind GymKit is to make it simple so that if you have a device that, for example, is more accurately tracking what you're doing, like running on a treadmill, um, the watch can kind of guesstimate how fast you're running and how far you've run, but there's no way they can really know because there's no distance to track when you're just moving on a treadmill. So GymKit would be a way for that data to be more accurately transferred to the watch or uh, health uh, data in terms of like sensors, you know, heart rate, um, those sorts of things. Um, any measurable data, you know, you're on a bike, um, you have your hands on the heart rate sensor, you know, maybe that's more accurate than, than uh, what would be on your wrist with the watch. So it's just a way for that kind of data to be more easily transferred between devices. Um, and it just makes the Apple Watch a more central part of a health ecosystem. Right, so GymKit is compatible with currently ellipticals, treadmills, stationary bikes, and stair climbers. And, you know, with a bike computer, one of the things that's being tracked is your revolutions as your pedals go around, right, right, as you drive the crank around. And the Apple Watch doesn't really get a good read on that necessarily, although, you know, you you can get some of that. But if it's pairing with Ant Plus on traditional bike computers or if it's pairing with GymKit on a stationary bike, you get a, a much more precise resolution of data. Yeah, so I like to run outside, and obviously I get pretty good data with my Apple Watch Series 3 because it's got cellular, GPS, all that stuff that can triangulate my location and get it pretty accurate. But when I go to the gym, I get on a stationary bike, and there's no way for it to know any data beyond... You started the workout at this time, your heart rate got up to this level, and we estimate based on the data you put in with your weight and age and all that that you burned X number of calories. But that that data is not very accurate um 
I mean, it's accurate enough, I think, for most people. It, what does it really matter whether you burned 250 or 275 calories, you know? But um, obviously, to get, if you're a very serious training person who, you know, maybe you're training for a marathon or, or uh, uh, you know, an Ironman competition or something like that, um, you would want to get that more detailed information from the stationary bike, uh, in a way that you can't just get from the built-in workout app. And so to make it seamless, to have that data transfer over is, is a good thing, but it's going to take some time, uh, <laughs> as evidenced by the fact that it's only available in one gym in the entire United States, no, uh, no, and North America and, and a, a, uh, and a, and a rooftop Manhattan gym, no less. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things I was like, man, maybe I'll go check it out. And then I looked into it. I was like, nope, won't be going to check that out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, hopefully soon it will come. It's really going to depend on, uh, you know, gyms and their eagerness to update their equipment or retrofit old equipment to make it work with this. Uh, I think this is something that in five years uh, might be a big deal, but don't hold your breath. Well, what I'm looking at is... There's, there's sort of a progression, right? Just as when you have a luxury car, the, the luxury car gets features first as options, then as standard, and then they start to become apparent on uh, more affordable models. Right. That, that this is the kind of thing where it rolls out at these premium locations. There's the Lifetime Athletic at Sky. There's a Virgin Active Gym in London. And there's an Australian branch of Fitness First. And so you've got three gyms across three continents. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at some point, this becomes more widespread. As you say, it's either retrofitted or uh, gyms refresh their equipment. At some point, and this is where I'm looking in the five years, is that it becomes an option or a standard part of equipment that you buy for your home. You know, maybe you buy a rowing machine or you buy a stationary bike for your house or you've got a treadmill in your house, which is a yeah. pretty common thing in North America. Uh, there are plenty of people who do. That your, your home equipment gets this gym kid. Yeah. I, I think that, um, that's an inevitability as well. Um, and it's, it's exciting and I'm looking forward to that day, but I, I don't think it's going to be coming anytime soon just cause I mean, how many, how many gyms have you been to where they still have the 30 pin for the original iPod? Uh, Neil, I haven't set foot in a gym, uh, ever. Well, you, <laughs> you might want to work on that. You that's a different problem. No, I've got a rolling machine here at the house. Well, that's and, good. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you go to gyms, um, they typically have older equipment there. And even when they buy new stuff, for some reason, it still all has the 30 pin connector on it. And none of them come with lightning connectors. Now what they'll do is they'll just have a generic USB port where you can bring your own cable and plug it in. But because lightning doesn't do video over lightning to USB, uh, you have lost the video out capabilities of old iPods. So my wife at one point was actually taking an old iPod Nano, loading it up with shows from iTunes and using that to watch it on the screen uh, That because the, they have like a nice, you know, LCD screen on the treadmill. And she was using that to watch TV shows at the gym because her iPhone can't do it. So um, th- that is an area where uh, Apple was doing pretty well and they kind of blew it. Um, I, I don't know how much they care. I don't know how much it really matters in the end. Um, but it, it is uh, something where the switch to lightning did take a step backwards. So hopefully we see, start to see things go in the right direction, not just in terms of gym kit, but in terms of opening up NFC in the iPhone and the Apple watch and everything else. You know, I've been saying for years on this podcast that, uh, you know, Apple needs to get to a point where all their devices communicate better. There, there's no reason that my watch does not talk to my Mac, you know, I hear you or my iPad. 
like especially now that the the watch has LTE, it has its own Wi-Fi radio in it. Uh, you know, you and I heard um, a few months ago from a listener, and I thought it was pretty interesting, and it was a use case that I didn't I didn't consider. Um, it was a guy who shared a iPhone with his wife because they don't need two phones. Um, you know, they're always together, you know, you get messages, take phone calls, whatever, but they both wanted to wear the Apple watch and you can't have two watches at once connected with an iPhone. Right, and you can switch them out if you have your daytime watch and then right. your nighttime rose gold, whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you have two users, that doesn't work. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe that example is a little hyper specific and, and wouldn't apply to the vast majority of people, but it does raise the question, why can't you connect an Apple watch to an iPad? Why isn't there a health app for iPad or for Mac? Um, and it's, it's not a wrong question. It's not that unusual or strange a uh, request because if you think about it, right, the watch is becoming more and more independent every day, mm -hmm. right? It's got LTE. You need to have an iPhone to activate it. But otherwise, it can be out there in the world pretty much doing its thing. Yeah, this is just like when the iPad launched. You needed to initially connect it to a Mac or a PC to uh, get it going. Um, and then eventually it became its own computing platform. And you can set it up now without connecting it to a computer. But that was a not so subtle way of Apple to signal to consumers, hey, you may want to use this to replace your computer, but we're not quite there yet. Um, and eventually they got there. And I think that the watch is heading in the same direction. And I think that inevitably you will be able to use a watch independently of a phone entirely. Uh, but they clearly don't think that the capabilities of the battery life are there right now. But I question that in some ways, because if you're the type of person who um, is at home most of the time, you're a retiree or you're like me, you work from home, uh, you're connected to your own home Wi-Fi all the time anyhow. And so in that situation, your phone doesn't need to be tethered to your watch. Your watch can connect directly to Wi-Fi. Um, you know, as long as if you, and okay, you need a parent device for it to sync data to for health and that sort of stuff. Fine. Why not an iPad? Why not a Mac? Why not, why not a PC? And not only that, why not use the same tools that they're using in GymKit to have NFC, have these devices just talk to each other in a way that works a little bit more seamlessly than it does right now. You know, the switching. You know, would be really nuts. And this has never happened. I say that knowing <laughs> that, that the things that we said would never happen have happened, like right. iTunes on the PC, for example. <laughs> but what if your Apple Watch could synchronize with or, or activate with your Android phone? Yeah, you know, that's one that's come up. And, and there are hacks to get it to work where you put your iPhone or your Android phone in like a tethering mode and then it uses the data from it. Um, I don't see why not. I, I, you know, it's like, yeah, this is a crazy idea. It's designed to drive iPhone sales, blah, blah, blah. But it's designed to work with Apple Health, not Google Fit. You know, there, there are all the kinds of details there. But if the idea is that we are in a post-PC era, then these mobile devices eventually stand on their own and they could drive people to move to iOS or move to an iPhone. Yeah, I, I agree with that logic. You know, uh, the the thing that makes Apple stand out and the thing that, that makes people like their products so much is they're such a joy to use, right? It, it's a fun experience. It's pleasurable. It's something you can rely on. And they proudly for years, uh, well before the iPhone, when the iPod was around, we're talking about how, to, how it had a halo effect, how it drove Mac sales because people were introduced to Apple products through the iPod. And they said, this thing's pretty great. I want to get a Mac. And that was a proven effect. Mac sales continually grew, and it only got better with the iPhone, and and obviously the iPad has benefited from that as well. Um, Did you I, remember what the iPod was like before there was iTunes for PC? 
<laughs> not a great experience. So, well, in 2002, the, iP- the iPod debuted, and in 2003, it started to catch on. And at this time, it was only supported with iTunes on Mac. Right. And there, and there it was were Firewire these, and had a physical click wheel on it. It, it was Firewire with a physical and then a, a touch wheel. Yeah, they quickly got rid of the, the physical turning yeah, wheel. Yeah, the physical wheel moved to the second gen that was the touch wheel. Yeah. But what happened is that I, I worked in an Apple store. I worked in the streets of South Point Apple store back in 2002, 2003, briefly. And the shelves had Belkin PCI FireWire cards so that people who owned PCs could come in and buy a FireWire card with their iPod and then use software that Apple did not create called Music Match. Mm-hmm. And Music Match allowed your sync. iPod to, to synchronize with your Dell. And and we had to go through and explain to people who were coming in to buy an iPod that you also need to buy this $50 PCI card and install it in your PC, and we don't do that for you. And it was a really awkward time on this path to getting people to to have that halo effect. Yeah, I, it, it you know, and... And people thought hell, you know, would freeze over before iTunes would come to the PC, and and it happened. Uh, we this eventually, the, uh, at some point, got a glass of ice water to the guy in hell. <laughs> yeah. Basically, we we eventually, for some reason, got Safari on the PC, uh, which was interesting and and somewhat short lived um, in hindsight. But um, it's not unprecedented. So could we see Apple Watch connect um, in some way, even basic like? Uh, not getting notifications necessarily from your Android phone, but, you know, just tapping into his data or something. Eh, why not? Why not? Tapping to the data seems the easy one. Tapping into, you know, the, the thing to do would be to load your, your email accounts over and have your text messages transfer over kind right. of thing. Yeah. And that actually is an interesting one because we have another story that I know we didn't talk about before we started doing this, but... There is a, a hack that we covered on the site about using your Mac to push iMessage to an Android right. phone. Because, you know, iMessages and iMessage have been solely an iOS phenomenon. And, and, and they phenomenon. will remain yeah. as such. I see I see more reason to make the Apple Watch connect to an Android phone than I do to bring iMessage to Android. Oh, absolutely. I'm just thinking that in terms of... of um, being able to to move data around or have data go to different places, that it's certainly something Apple could do if they wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, this app... They, they could certainly make an Apple Watch functional and activate and bring over your accounts from yeah. an Android device yeah, yeah. if they chose I, to. Well, they already have tools to do that kind of stuff, to migrate from Android to iOS. Um, you can download it from Apple's website. <clears throat> so, I mean, they're... Uh, from Play. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, they, they have... And they also, you can get, you can get uh, Apple Music on your Android device. So, uh, it's not... It's not unheard of, and honestly, it would be <clears throat> one of the best things that they could do for Apple Watch sales. Um, but the the way to do it wouldn't be to make it about Android. It would be just to say that it is now kind of platform agnostic, you know, um, in the same way that you can use yes. an iPad and tether it to your Android device on the go or something like that. Uh, the experience is not as seamless, uh, but it works, and and so I, I don't see any. I don't. I don't think it's that cr- crazy of an idea. Um, I think that it eventually could happen. But you know, Jim Kid is a great start for this kind of stuff. I'm excited to see NFC capabilities open up more to third party developers on the Apple Watch and on the iPhone. Uh, you know, there's no reason that we can't securely have, uh, for example, um, building access or um, uh, public transit capabilities uh, tapping into the NFC 
chip on an iPhone to make it so you can tap to enter your building or tap to pay for the bus or the subway or whatever. Um, and, and iOS 11 has supposedly paved the groundwork for that, but we haven't seen any third-party apps that have taken advantage of it. So I'm not really sure what's going on there, if developers are dragging their feet or if Apple has kind of gimped it a little bit. Um, but Jimkit is an in-house way of them expanding the, the hardware capabilities and, and what they can do and, and the extensibility of NFC. So um, I'm hopeful that in the next few years we start to see that expand more. And, you know, some of that stuff's kind of gimmicky. You know, it's been on Android for years, and, and Apple played a little bit with that kind of stuff with Bluetooth and iBeacon. Um, and I don't know how well that is going to appeal to general consumers, but if anybody's going to do it in a way that makes it accessible and makes it relevant, Apple's going to be the company to do it. Absolutely. Well, you know, I I like the idea of iOS fitness connected things. Like I said, I've got this rowing machine and my rowing machine is connected to an iOS app called Live Rowing. So I get the same kinds of real-time stats that we write off the rowing machine into the app. And that's something that I've been doing for a while. We should put that up on the site. I see a lot of, uh, yeah, I think that would be a, a great piece for the site. Um, I see a lot of commercials now for Peloton. Have you seen that? Yes, Peloton. So Peloton is something I saw at CES last year, and a little bit before CES, actually. And it's a stationary bike that uses, you can either use it with an iPad or you can use it with their big giant touchscreen that they have built into the bikes. And you subscribe and you get live streaming lessons right. from coaches and you get to share your stats with other riders, sort of like you'd, you'd get in an MORPG, you know, right. a real role-playing game kind of thing. You see everyone Gamifying else's stats it. on your team. Gamifying it. But the the coaching and the setting of the bike's resistance and things so that you're really taking advantage of the coached lesson instead of just getting on and hope that you're doing it right is a kind of a huge thing. And, and I was looking at this from a, a you know – how can I do things on the cheap kind of standpoint? There are all kinds of ways that you can hang Arduino and Ant sensors on a traditional stationary bike and use Peloton's lessons over iPad and accomplish the same kind of thing. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, they've been advertising like crazy. So um, I'm I, – I, Can we request <laughs> I one? Can't, I have Peloton. a 500-square-foot apartment. I can't fit one in here. Can I can if I put in a review to, yeah, request for that? If you got the room for it, put it next to your <laughs> room right. machine, sure. I'll be at the, I'll be at the Y. Absolutely. We, we can do that. <laughs> Let's uh, let's let's move away from Android Insider and Fitness Insider and talk a little bit about Phil Schiller. Okay. And specifically what okay. Phil Schiller had to say. So, Senior Vice President of Worldwide Marketing, Phil Schiller, uh, been with Apple all the way through the the Steve Jobs revival, the rebirth of Apple from 1997 mm -hmm. forward. Uh, he has been going around on a media tour talking about all things Apple, and his latest interview talked about some of their thought processes. Uh, why they decided to move away from Touch ID across the board. And he commented on the HomePod as well. You know, this is this is interesting. You know, they're, they're the classic Apple kinds of quotes that he gave. You know, the, the kind of thing where they know when it's time to leave something behind and go towards something right. that's the future. You know, his quote was, this is an exciting moment when you have to sort of the old saying, you know, burn the boats, leave the past behind and commit, knowing that the team was willing to make that gamble was a key point early enough in the process. So we still don't even know but why the HomePod was delayed. Is this just something to do with the hardware? Is it something to do with the software? So I was curious this week because uh, Google started shipping their Home Max, which is about as direct a competitor as you're going to get to the HomePod. It 
does the same sort of, you know, adjusting its audio in the room. Um, it uh, has built-in Chromecast capabilities, um, Google Cast or whatever they call it, so that you can beam from your iPhone or your Android device music to it. Uh, it does personal assistant stuff, and it's a high-end speaker. And it costs $50 more than, than the HomePod. So I was curious, and I reached out to a bunch of... Uh, uh, speaker makers that are announced to be supporting AirPlay 2 to see if they had anything to say. Uh, and I was hoping that I could get some sort of an indication as to whether uh, maybe AirPlay 2 was the the hang-up, um, and maybe that's why they haven't shipped the HomePod. But uh, everybody's still tight-lipped, and so that suggests to me that, uh, that they're still in the dark, and they don't really know. Um, I think that, I think that uh, Apple hasn't really told partners anything beyond AirPlay 2 is coming, and whether that is because there's some sort of an issue with it or just because they don't want other manufacturers to get their speakers out before the HomePod, I don't know. Uh, but it is still a perplexing thing if they could not ship this speaker. Yeah. So Phil's quote was, it's really very simple. It's a brand new product. There's a lot of engineering to make it be the product that we've described and, and for oh, it to be all that we hope it can be. <laughs> That's all meaningless. So, dribble. well, there are a couple. There are a couple perspectives, right? That's that you can say that that's meaningless, but at the same time, you can say that that's indicative. Uh, you know, you can read the tea leaves a little and say that's indicative of a manufacturing or engineering problem, or you can go ahead and say it's a software issue, like you said earlier, where you know we we've seen them have software issues lately with eleven point two with High Sierra, so there must have been some crippling software thing going on with HomePod to delay it. Or they knew how much else they had to do with High Sierra to to get it working before they could do HomePod. Just devoting whatever it is, I have very high hopes and high expectations for the HomePod whenever it ships. I think it's going to be a good product, Um, especially now that they've delayed (laughs) it. It better be right. He just said that it's going to take a lot of engineering to make it be the product they've described and for what they want it to be. So now your expectations should be even higher. And they can spin it however they want, and and uh, supporters of the company can justify it however they want. But at the end of the day, Apple announced they would ship a product at a certain time frame, and they failed to do it. And that is a blemish for the company, one that prides itself in not pre-announcing products in that way. Uh, they did, and they didn't ship on time. This is not an unrecoverable blemish. No, definitely not. All they have not. to do is ship. Definitely not, but they're going to lose out on a lot of holiday sales, so... I think they've already come to terms with that. Yeah, obviously they have. But <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that that ship sailed a while ago. And I, you know, how many Google Home Maxes are they going to sell at three hundred ninety nine dollars? I don't know. I can't imagine one. That, yeah, I can't imagine that's going to be a hot seller. Uh, so you know, this is not a disaster. But uh, I think that as we've talked about before, while they're not direct competitors, I think a lot of cheap Alexas and Google Home Minis. Uh, will be sold as a result of this because people are going to look at it and go, eh, 30 bucks, what do I get to lose? I was going to get a HomePod, but I'll try it out. So G- Google's plan is this, right? Alexa's, Amazon's plan is they want Alexa in everything everywhere. Right. And and Google is trying to follow that recipe because it's been very good for Amazon so far. Right. But Google's plan has, for the longer period of time, been that they want Google Cast in everything, everywhere. And right. that's why they have Google Cast in all of Vizio's TVs. That's why they have it in... Uh, Samsung and Sony's. That's why they have it been every speaker that they've got here from the smallest mini up to this max thing, Mm -hmm. because they like the idea of you being able to do whole house audio on the cheap. That's why the the Google cast for audio is 30 bucks. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and the regular Chromecast for video is also 30 bucks because if you have these things and then you add one Google home mini, you have the ability to say with a voice command and play audio or play video and the audio all across your house. 
Mm-hmm. It's a really powerful thing, and it's very affordable comparatively. And it is a it's a weakness right now for Apple, and so that's why you see Google and and Amazon pushing so hard in that space because it's a place where they feel like they can get a leg up on the biggest name in consumer technology. And that's something that Google's tried for in the past and had a little bit of a difficult time pulling off. Yeah, let, let's not forget, Google's new to the hardware game. They've partnered with some companies here and there and done some stuff, but Android success has been on the back of Samsung. And Amazon, while not as new to the hardware game, um, has had some minor success in uh, iPad competitors, very cheap ones, had a disaster of a time trying to get into the smartphone business. Um, and they've done well with Kindle. And they've, I mean, I guess they've done well with Echo. I, we don't know any sales figures or anything like uh, that. But I, I would say that, like you suspect, right? It's the the Echo Dot, the small one, the affordable yeah, one, the cheap one. That that was the bestseller on Black Friday, is what they said. So, so without telling you what bestseller means, Am- yeah, Amazon and <clears throat> Amazon and Google have a lot in common there because they are two companies that desperately wanted to get into the consumer hardware space and they want to compete with Apple directly, um, but they are picking their battles because, I mean, let's be real, the the Google Pixel, um, pretty well received, people generally like it, they're never going to sell as many Google Pixels as Apple sells iPhones ever. In a million years, they never will. True. So, I mean, that, that they want to get in that space, they want to sell some phones, but that ship has sailed. I mean, Microsoft got kicked out of this market. Come on. <laughs> One of the biggest companies on the planet couldn't compete. Uh, you know, Google has a foot in the door with the platform, so they're going to continue to tread water there and try to push the pixel, but they're never going to compete with the iPhone. And so they see speakers as a place where they can not only compete with Apple, but maybe beat them. And so that's why you're seeing a lot of investment by Google and Amazon in that space. It is very easy to lose a lot of money doing hardware. Yeah. It is. It is not hard because you have a lot of upfront costs, right? You have to do your engineering. You have to do your tooling. You have to do your manufacturing all before you ever make a sale. Right. It is not hard to burn a ton of money. Yeah, and how many $1,000 Chromebooks do you really think Google is selling? And I'm sure their hardware on those is fine. I'm sure they're decent products, but I mean, how many are they really selling? Come on. I mean, it, it some of that stuff is to show that it can be done and show the way for what the third parties ought to be making. Right. You know, they, the, the touchscreen Pixel book that also runs Android apps in Chrome is an interesting idea, but the vast majority of Chromebook sales are the the two hundred and three hundred dollar Toshiba's and Fujitsu's. When we're talking about Google and when we're talking about Amazon, we're talking about cheap stuff that sells. And there, there, you know, Chromebooks are. There's a good reason for them. They're they're great yeah. at being the machine that if it breaks, you throw it away and buy another one because all you have to do is sign in and all your stuff comes back. And and I am convinced that the success of the Chromebook is one of the reasons that Apple got so aggressive on the iPad pricing this year with the $330 entry-level iPad, which I think is the best value in, in Apple's entire product lineup. That thing is it, awesome. It is. But the issue is managing the device. You know, when, when an education buyer goes ahead and buys a bunch of Chromebooks for a class and one breaks, they throw it out and they give it to kid another one to sign into and they're done. Right. With iOS, with iPads, they have to do MDM, they have to do a ton of stuff for this. And it's it's a real issue. It's a real hard thing to go ahead and deal with all of that stuff comparatively. Yeah. So and and that ignores the whole issue of curriculum. You have to have a curriculum designed around the tools that are present on each of those platforms so that you actually take advantage of them. Right. That was the problem way back when um 
oh, uh, it was Enrico County, Virginia, that bought tons of iBooks 10 years ago. And they brought them all in, and it was wonderful. It was big news. And they had no curriculum to support it to speak of, really. Mm-hmm. Or uh, Duke, for example, Duke University got a bunch of iPods for every freshman one year. And they were <laughs> going to – but they didn't quite figure out what the curricula was like for putting on those iPods to make them support the educational experience. Yeah, you gotta, they, you got to have a follow-through on it. You know, what you ended up with was a bunch of Duke students who were selling off their iPod for money. <laughs> Beer money. Pretty much. There you go. From number one New York Times bestselling author James Rollins comes the thrilling new novel, The Demon Crown. Often compared to Clive Cussler and Michael Crichton, Rollins combines real science and history with cutting-edge military action. Off the coast of Brazil, a team of scientists discovers a horror like no other, an island where all life has been eradicated, consumed, and possessed by a species beyond imagination. To save mankind's future, the members of Sigma Force must make a devil's bargain and join forces with their most hated enemy, even if it means sacrificing one of their own. This is a great time and a great book to begin joining on the wildly successful Sigma Force series. Rollins' latest Sigma Force novel is one of the best in the series. The mix of science, history, and high-concept adventure is always first-rate in Rollins' novel, says Booklist. Publishers Weekly calls it bone-chilling. Get started with videos, audio, and more at jamesrollins.com. That's J-A-M-E-S-R-O-L-L-I-N-S.com. Now, Neil, we were talking a while back about the A10 chip that we expected to be in the iMac Pro. That was the rumor, yeah. That was what we talked about. And it, it looks like what's come to light is that the iMac Pro is going to sport a custom chip dubbed the T2. Right. And the T2 is going to act as the secure enclave for encrypted keys. It's going to lock down the boot process, uh, handle the system functions like the camera, the audio control. Basically, all of the functions that we were talking about under that A10 rumor. Yeah. Um, I think that we're not really going to know what this T2 is until there's a teardown and, and whatever, because um, as expected, when we were talking about this before, we were saying if there's an A10, there's something here that we're, we're missing. Um, and I think the thing that we were missing is that it's not really an A10. I think it's probably a very low-power processor. So the T1 chip, the first one that Apple did, came in the 2016 MacBook Pro. And it's a controller that serves as the bridge between the touch bar and the Mac OS uh, and Intel processor. Uh, allows them to kind of seamlessly work with one another. And it also handles the secure enclave for um, Apple Pay and Touch ID on the MacBook Pro. Obviously, you don't have Touch ID on an iMac, so what would you use uh, a secure enclave for? Well, you use it for uh, storing encrypted uh, information, passwords, that sort of stuff. You also use it for locking down and controlling certain aspects of the hardware and software that you want to make sure are secure, especially if you're a system administrator and you have a iMac Pro that you're buying with sensitive information, you're working on the next Star Wars or something, and you don't want people to, you know, have remote access to your system to uh, leak sensitive information. So what they have is a new secure boot feature, which ensures that uh, everything is up to date and is the proper hardware while it boots to make sure that nothing nothing funny is going on. No, no tampering so. in the uh, firmware, no tampering in the bootloader. Because those right. kinds of things, or tampering in the kernel, because those kinds of things would lead to a machine that boots and allows you to inject or withdraw code, right? Right. So this locks down the iMac Pro. 
Uh, but it does not require the processing capabilities of an A10 chip, which can run a computer on its own. So um, wait, this this goes to the question that was asked by the iPad advertisements not too long ago. What is a computer? Because I would I would venture to say that this T2 chip acting as the secure enclave is a computer. The what we're talking about it doing <laughs> is what we're talking about it doing is well beneath the capabilities of the A10 processor. Yes, the A10 processor is a very complicated uh, chip that is capable of pushing 4K video on the Apple TV, the latest Apple TV, uh, runs the latest iPad Pros in the A10X form. Um, This is a a, a potential Intel replacement on a low-end Mac. This is not something for handling secure boot. (laughs) Now, so you have to realize that the T1 chip was actually uh, based on the design of what was called the S1P chip, another custom piece of silicon that Apple made for the first generation Apple Watch. So if I had to venture a guess, I would say that the T2 chip is probably built on the dual core uh, second or third generation chip that Apple has introduced in more recent watches. Um, That would make sense in terms of the processing capabilities of it. Uh, It would make sense in terms of the investment to put into it. And um, it would make sense based on what it does in the machine. Now, if it ends up that it really is an A10 in disguise, uh, then the stuff that we talked about before still remains, and I think that there would be potential for Apple to tap into it for uh, developer-focused stuff in the future. Um, I think that more likely the T2 chip uh, is uh, an extension of the Apple Watch processor um, and the, what they've learned from there. I would suspect that you will see it in the MacBook Pro next year. I would suspect that you will see it do some of the things that we talked about potentially being advantageous in a note in a notebook, like uh, low power uh, consumption for certain tasks or background tasks or power nap or that sort of stuff. Um, and obviously the secure boot features that you have on the iMac Pro. Uh, but if it's if it's an A10, then then it's a Trojan horse uh, and it's going to do something else in the future. But if it's just this low power Apple Watch extension, then it's not going to do any of that stuff. And that that makes sense because we didn't really understand why they would do an A10 and we were just trying to come up with ideas for what would be the purpose of it. The fact that it's a low power chip that handles secure secure boot um, and things that you would want to make sure secure, like the camera, for example. I mean, even Mark Zuckerberg covers up the camera on his and microphone on his MacBook. I think that uh, uh, that makes sense. That's the kind of stuff that you want to lock down and could end up with a huge security issue if it was exploited. Uh, so, you know, th- it makes sense. You know, you're going to have the iMac Pro on your desk in uh, in a couple of days here. I won't. No, you won't? No. Oh. <laughs> I don't have the desk First space First of all, you don't have the desk space for it. No. 27-inch iMac, no. No. But yeah, Apple announced um, after months of waiting, it was announced at WWDC, they said it would ship in June. Um, they announced on Tuesday and that it's going to ship uh, Thursday, which will be the day after people are listening to this, uh, the 14th. And... Um, they also sent out some early review units to some video professionals, but also a bunch of YouTubers, which is interesting. Well, that that follows on with the plan that they went with with the iPhone, right? They no, want- it, no, actually, it doesn't. Um, the iPhone, um, they invited a handful of YouTubers to go to 
an office that they have in New York City to film video of the phone, but they didn't get to take one home. Okay. So it was basically Apple was holding the phone and they were like, here's your talking points. Pretty much every video turned out the same because the environment was so controlled. They did send review units to tech professionals, including our own Daniel Aaron Dilger. And um, we we had our, you know, ours under embargo um, like everyone else did. But the iMac Pro, we didn't get and uh, they decided to go with a different market for it. Uh, they, they did check, send it to um, one of the developers at Panic. Um, they did send it to a few video professionals who work on feature films in Hollywood. And they sent it to a bunch of YouTubers, which was interesting. Um, um, one very popular guy, um, Marquez Brownlee, MKBHD, I think he goes by on YouTube. Um, he, uh, he did a hands-on and I thought it was very good. And then one of his buddies, some popular YouTuber that I've never heard of, <laughs> just did this video where he, he put the iMac pro on a desk out in front of what looked like a museum somewhere. And it was like, check out my setup. I got some speakers and a desk with colors that match the space gray iMac pro. And like, that was the entire video. And it was just like these seductive shots of a computer that you can't afford with a desk that you can make installment payments on. And I was just like, what is the point of this video? Who wants to watch this? I want to see the YouTuber. You, you've seen this before uh, on occasion, I'm sure, right? I, I was in a coffee shop uh, a couple of years ago meeting with a friend. And as, as he and I were sitting down and drinking a cup of coffee and talking, catching up, this guy came in with a CRT tube monitor and a keyboard <laughs> and a mouse and a tower PC. And wow. he set up on a table his computer, his full-size desktop computer with CRT monitor, not an LCD panel, and proceeded to sit there and camp out and and compute at the coffee was, shop. Was he was he playing a LAN game of Unreal Tournament or I, Quake 3 Arena? I didn't even look. I couldn't <laughs> – I, I was so stunned by the concept that you would cart around a CRT and a tower to your coffee shop. What? I'm, I, I just he, he just I had to play Command and Conquer Red Alert pretty much, his, uh, and so you know I want to see a YouTuber unbox and CRT bring an monitor, iMac no, no Pro ghosting on that bad boy to <laughs> you know bring the iMac Pro to the coffee shop. They actually sell a thing. I, I've seen this product. Um, I don't know if it's for the 27 inch or just for the 21.5 inch, but some company reached out to us a few years ago, and they sell this thing. It's like a bag for your iMac. Oh, yeah. So it wraps around and covers the screen, and then it has handles so you can carry it and bring your iMac with you. Why anyone would, would ever do that, I have no idea. But I have seen that. They're, they're, you know, they used to, in the dawn of time before there were laptops, you'd have a little uh, 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 sort of a lunch bag that you carried your classic Mac in. I have been tempted to get an iMac and get one of those, um, just because I have such limited desk space, um, get a stand for it, and then just have all the desk space underneath it empty. Oh, the vase mount. You want to do the vase yeah. mount with the telescoping arm? Yeah, I think that would be pretty sweet. And I, I probably end up doing something like that. Um, I'm waiting for the eGPU support in the MacBook Pro um, and, and Mac OS High Sierra, I guess it works if you really want to do a second monitor with your iMac or something. Um, the external GPU support, I'm waiting for that to come out of beta next spring. And I suspect that we'll see new MacBook Pros and the official Apple monitor around that time. 
and I'm really considering dropping some serious coin and getting the official Apple monitor, especially if they do a retina display in like the 21.5 inch size on a smaller size comparable to the smaller iMac, the 4K, um, and then get some sort of a mounting station for the MacBook Pro to clear up some desk space. Get, you know, a magic keyboard and a small mouse, yeah. take up less desk space. I'm, I, that's what I want to do. Have a nice desk, you know, workstation with some GPU horsepower, and then I can undock my MacBook Pro when I really need something on the go and kind of get the best of both worlds. There are VESA mounts for monitor stands like you're talking about with the the two collapsing arms, the yeah. pantograph arms that yeah. uh, support dual monitors. So you can reposition your dual monitors and have them. I don't want to do dual monitors. I'm not interested in that. Oh, you're just not trying. You give up too soon. What What annoys me and the thing that hurts me the most, and this is um, what I'm annoyed about with the new iMac Pro as well, is you pay, you spend all this money to get a MacBook Pro with Touch Bar. And say what you will about the Touch Bar. The, the developer support has been lacking. Apple could do a lot more to push it. Um. The fact that they released a new... So remember, there have been no new Pro iMacs released other than the MacBook Pro in the last, what, three, f- four years? Since whenever the Mac Pro is updated, right? Yes. The iMac Pro is an entirely new product line. The fact that they introduced the iMac Pro and don't have a touch bar on the keyboard um, is kind of offensive to me. Especially because... You can't, if you were to get an external GPU for MacBook Pro, for example, you have to use a external monitor. You can't do it with the in- internal monitor. So you either have to clamshell or use your MacBook Pro as a second monitor, which kind of defeats the purpose of having the touch bar because you're looking at a different screen. So I think that, you know, maybe it's battery concerns. Maybe, you know, it's not going to last long enough on a wireless keyboard and they insist on having that magic keyboard be wireless or whatever. But I think that they need to have some form of a touch bar option for desktop use. You know, I I understand where you're coming from with that. And we can only wait and see if they actually bring it to fruition. I think that the iMac Pro is the perfect time to do it. I think an optional, expensive keyboard with touch bar um, with built-in Touch ID, its own secure enclave for Apple Pay, and maybe because of battery concerns, it's a wired keyboard. And you don't bundle it with the machine. You make people pay extra for it. you know, and you don't make it your primary way of using it, I think that would be a great option for pro users. And I think it would only help adoption of the touch bar. I agree. I want to divert a little bit from what we're talking about because I want to let you know and let all our listeners know that uh, iOS 11.2.1 and tvOS 11.2.1 are now available. Mm -hmm. Uh, This just happened as we've been talking. And the point about this release is that it includes fixes for HomeKit sh- for shared users. Uh, shared users for HomeKit was temporarily disabled last week to address a vulnerability in, in the HomeKit framework. Mm-hmm. And this version of the OS updates that. So if you use HomeKit as I and Neil do, uh, this is a good time to update. Yes. Yeah, that, that was a, a yet another pretty significant security flaw where people who were not authorized to remotely access your door locks and things like that could. So Apple quickly disabled the capability on their end um, so that nobody could take advantage of it. Um, But, you know, add it to the long list of of software problems that Apple has had recently. Uh, You know, hopefully nobody was actually affected by this. Hopefully it's just, you know, a minor inconvenience in the grand scheme of things. But the fact that this was capable in the first place does sow some doubt in the security of HomeKit. Uh, for people that may be considering adopting it. So 
uh, let's hope that this is the end of this kind of stuff. Yeah, and this is a small update. The fix is clearly not a large amount of code, right? It's a 57 meg update compared to yeah. the gigs of updates that we get for iOS full updates. Right. You know, versus point releases. The the thing that I want to say about this, when I first heard about this vulnerability, is that this was the reason that door locks and garage door manufacturers were so slow to implement HomeKit in the first place, because they were very fearful that they would lose control over the ability to secure their product. And their product exists because security. Right. You know, when the whole point of your product, a door lock or a garage door, is to secure a premises, and you hand that over to uh, to someone else... It's very, very scary. And this was exactly the thing they wanted to avoid. And the compromise for a while under Amazon Alexa was that you could lock things but not unlock them. Mm-hmm. So if, if something was already unlocked, you could say, hey, Alexa, lock the door, which would be fine because locking it sends it to a secure state, but you couldn't do the reverse. Right. And that's that's really kind of annoying because you, who wants to have the solution? With HomeKit, you could do all, you know, full control. And there were people at the time, a couple of years ago, who'd say, you know, but what if you leave your iPad in in your house and people shout through the door, hey, Siri, they can unlock your door. Well, it turned out, no, you can't because Siri doesn't really pick you up when you're shouting from outside the house. And it recognizes your voice with some limited biometrics, so it doesn't allow other people to use your devices. Right. So for a lot of reasons, that was a silly thing to say. But this vulnerability was the one that I, I think had to have had... You know, people like Quickset, people like Schlage, people like Chamberlain, the people that make these products that have to be secure. Mm-hmm. Quake a little bit. Yeah, I agree. On the list of things that doesn't cause people interested in security quiver and quake, Johnny Ive has returned to full hands-on control of the Apple design team. Yeah, supposedly he took some time off to finish the Campus 2 design, and now he's back in charge of where he was. I think that this should put to rest any concerns that he might be imminently leaving the company, you know, as these rumors go around. But Right. The, the old rumors were that he was leaving. They were that that he was distancing himself from design, that he was focused on the software side of things less than the hardware. There were all kinds of concerns about him doing this. And it turns out, in retrospect, do we think he just spent the past two years basically doing the campus work? Probably that in some retail, yeah. I think that they used some of the stuff they learned in the campus design and brought it to new retail stores. Good. I'm glad he's back on the main job because I can't wait to see what he does with the car. <laughs> wait, do you think he had a hand? I'm kidding. I threw that in Do you in think there he had a hand in designing the uh, black lightning cable that ships with the iMac Pro? Well, I, I think he must have because they had to have gone through 50 iterations of what the... Uh, reflectiveness and matte finish and gloss finish of the cable and connectors would have been like. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure he has input on all this stuff. What's, what's the durometer of the cable jacket? How does that feel in your hand when you flex it? All of that goes in. That's design. That's That goes into it. Th- that was one of the things that people got very excited about with this iMac Pro unboxing that was on YouTube, this, this black cable, the first time they've done that, an official Apple black cable. $5,000 desktop. With up to 18 Black cores. Cable. And we're talking about a lightning to USB cable. With a full-size USB port, too. Not even lightning to USB-C. What I will say is that you know we're making fun of the cable design there. But cable design is important. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I had yeah. a, a lightning cable that worked with a car charger. And it was a coiled cable. Which, you know, the, no- the, the point of a coiled cable is that it, it collapses upon itself, but you can extend right. it, right? Seems like a good thing for the car. The people who made this coiled cable did not pay attention to the durometer, which is uh, the the flexibility of the jacket. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's how rubbery or how stiff it is. And so the coiled cable was so stiff that you could not practically expand it. If you tried to expand it without holding on to the end of the cable, but you had it plugged into your phone, it would pull itself out of the phone before it would expand. Oh, jeez. Design. I'm telling you, design, it matters. No one pays attention to this stuff, but it does make a difference. Well, Apple is shipping the iMac Pro on time, um, which is good, unlike the HomePod. They are uh, seeing delays, however, for the 14 and 18 core models. So they have 8 and 10 core options that are going to be shipping as of this week. Um, they didn't even announce a 14 core option that, that came through, uh, Marquez Brownlee on YouTube, uh, revealed that they're going to have a 14 core option and the 18 core one as well. Um, and one other thing that we found kind of digging around is it looks like these chips are actually underclocked, um, and are, uh, custom, uh, from what Intel is shipping, um, in terms of getting more overall horsepower with the huge clock configurations that are being done in these desktops. So um, pretty interesting. Um, the benchmarks show that these things are just monsters. I mean, fastest Mac ever, as you would expect from a $5,000 computer. Um, there was some testing done with the 10-core model, just showing it just blowing away anything prior to it. So pretty exciting for people that are into desktop machines. Um, you know, I mean, this is coming with a Final Cut Pro update that's going to have an 8K timeline for messing around with 8K video. And I was talking with some people in the comments the other day who were talking about, you know, what you would use 8K video for. I don't think that has any practical implication at home. Um, but for editors who are shooting with super high resolution videos, I mean, obviously the editing process is destructive. So as you crop and remove and stuff, you're going to lose some. So having more pixels to work with is always a good thing. I don't think that we're going to see 8K TV screens in our home anytime soon. I don't think there's a real need for that kind of stuff. But um, certainly for video pros and for the people that are going to be spending $5,000 and up on a desktop, uh, that's a great feature to have and kind of helps future-proof this this machine. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're looking at a real workhorse, a really powerful desktop, and uh, it makes me and, and, and other people that are into the as they call them, speeds and feeds. Uh, very excited not only for this, but to see what Apple does with the modular Mac Pro next year uh, with a true desktop tower. That's cool. You know, I that's all wonderful. But I want to know is if the when when the strain relief on the black cable breaks, can I take the lightning cable back to the Apple store and get another black one? Or I'm going to have to settle for a white one? <laughs> Are they going to have them no. on, on stock there behind the Genius Bar? <sighs> okay. It's it's a problem. It is, you know. You you want the black cable. Uh, Finisar. Finisar is a firm that makes the VCSEL. That's the vertical cavity surface emitting laser that's used in the iPhone X's true depth camera. Yeah. And Apple has gifted Finisar $390 million out of their advanced manufacturing fund. Uh, the point of this is to allow Finisar to increase their R&D spend so they can... Uh, can keep working on this and keep working on improving it. Yeah, and this will help with uh, future augmented reality applications. The expectation is that it won't be next year's iPhone, but uh, the 2019 model where they'll bring the same uh, technology that's in the true depth camera to the rear camera, um, and that'll allow for even greater depth sensing and and, uh, uh, object tracking and that sort of stuff um, on those cameras. Um, but, uh, you know, this kind of investment shows where Apple, uh, sees that they have an advantage over the competition and they're going to invest and continue to try to push forward. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the word on Twitter that this, that this is welfare to them. 
I, I don't think that it is. I think this is a strategic investment in helping Finisar put together a larger manufacturing plant that is directly related to Apple. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we ought to talk about in terms of Apple spending money is they're acquiring Shazam. So they spent, what, $400 million. That's the rumor. We don't know. Well, it's not the, the amount is the rumor, but the acquisition is not. Yes. They, both Shazam and <laughs> they, they Apple did buy it. Shazam. Uh, what will be interesting to see is whether they keep the Shazam app around or uh, whether they integrate it in, into Siri or they integrate it into Apple Music. My guess is they'll keep it in Siri um, and roll it into Apple Music because uh, if they got rid of the app entirely, that would. Uh, affect other platforms, namely Android. So I could see where they just roll it into uh, Apple, make it an Apple Music capability. Right. So the point of acquiring it is that you want to have that functionality in Siri. Mm -hmm. You want to have that functionality tie into linking to Apple Music, right? It it formerly linked to iTunes. You could go ahead and Shazam and then buy something on iTunes. Uh, But having it push to Apple Music and then, you know, choose their subscriptions helps a little bit too. Sure. Um, are there other applications for this? Uh, they've been dabbling for a few years in augmented reality and scanning advertisements and stuff um, and creating advertisements. So I would imagine that some of the technology and, and maybe patents that they have in that front uh, might have played a part in this as well. Right. So one of the things that they had done was uh, when a television commercial plays, if you have Shazam open, that the phone will give you more information or, or augment that advertisement kind of thing. Yeah, and, and ads on the street too. You could hold it up to like a, you know something at a bus stop and then it would not only scan it and display information, but do so in an augmented way that, you know, with like AR kit style augmented reality type stuff. So uh, they, they've been investing in that for a while and, and saw the potential to kind of scan the world around you and, and turn objects and, and things into uh, something more with augmented reality. So... Given Apple's uh, interest in ARKit, I think that that aligns pretty well with where they're looking to go and what they're looking to push into. So, and obviously the fact that they are, you know, one of the biggest music subscription services on the planet doesn't hurt either. Um, they can integrate it into that. So I think it's a a, a good investment all around. It, it seems to align very well with their business models and their direction. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's all I have for this episode. All right. You feel good about that? I do. Fantastic. Well, this is Neil Hurt Feelings Hughes. (laughs) Neil, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, You can uh, read me on Apple Insider. And thank you to all the people who uh, listened last week and and tried to perk me up in the comments and uh, (laughs) and said that they appreciate what we do here. Uh, We do read the comments and uh, we do appreciate you guys weighing in there. Um, You can also tweet at me on uh, Twitter. Uh, My handle is at thisisneil, N-E-I-L. And I'm your host, Victor. I'm at VMarks on Twitter. And you can go ahead and find my writings here. Uh, I've also been doing an interesting project that I started back in October at tokenreporter.co. Feel free to go ahead and subscribe to that one and check that out. And we will be back with a whole lot more all about Apple and all things related next week on the Apple Insider Podcast. <laughs>